Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. In the early hours of Saturday morning, Hamas fighters infiltrated the southern border of Israel on the ground, and Gaza-based fighters launched a massive barrage of rockets from the sky. Since then, over 600 Israelis have been killed, and we expect those numbers to go up. That's all according to local Israeli media. And an unknown number of Israeli citizens and soldiers are being held hostages, as well as potentially some American citizens. As we've seen in a number of terrifying videos uh, that have been released, I, I should warn you, these are quite disturbing. Um, and this tells us a lot about who's being held. Like this one, showing an, an, a captive Israeli woman being taken away in a motorcycle as she shouts to her boyfriend, who is also being held hostage. The residents of border cities describe the terror of Hamas militants entering their neighborhoods, coming into their homes, and of bodies lining the streets in their small towns. Secretary Blinken confirmed this morning that Americans could be among the dead and the hostages as well. Mr. Secretary, does the administration know at this point if U.S. citizens were among the dead or those taken hostage? So we have reports that several uh, Americans may be among the dead. We are very actively working to verify those reports. Similarly, we've seen reports about um, about hostages. And there again, we're very actively trying to verify them uh, and uh, nail that down. Meaning that there could be some U.S. citizens who have been taken hostage as well, Mr. Secretary? That's correct. We don't have an update on that yet, but if we get that over the next hour, we will certainly bring that to you. In response to what appears to be the worst terrorist attack on Israel in decades, Prime Minister Netanyahu vowed mighty vengeance and declared the enemy will pay a price it has never known before. We witnessed his words in action overnight as Israel launched retaliatory strikes on cities in Gaza, leveling buildings and killing over 300 people in Gaza so far. That's according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health. As fighting continues to rage on several fronts today, Prime Minister Mr. Netanyahu confirmed that the offensive phase of the response has begun and that will, it will continue with neither limitations nor respite until objections, objections are achieved. This morning, reports confirmed that civilian evacuations of cities and towns around Gaza have begun, a clear indication of the anticipated strikes to come. Now, this is all taking place in the midst of a few significant complicating factors. The effort to bring Israeli soldiers and citizens and maybe Americans and citizens from around the world home who are being held hostages, in all likelihood in the very cities and towns where the Israeli military plans to strike. The threat of expansion into a broader war with the engagement overnight of Iran, of Iran-backed militant, militant group Hezbollah, and the open question of whether the Iranians had prior knowledge or any engagement in the planned attacks. While we don't have any proof or confirmation of that to date, a U.S. official acknowledged yesterday that Hamas would not exist without the support for many decades from Iran. And while the attacks came as a surprise, tensions have been simmering in, the re simmering in the region for a very long time, which kind of begs the question, why didn't Israel see this coming? 
But putting aside for a moment how and why we got here, the question is now, what comes next? If you're sitting inside a White House during a weekend like this, and I have not been there for a moment like this, but many similar, you're basically in one roving meeting that moves from the Situation Room to the Oval Office back to agencies to get updates. You're getting a constant stream of updates from key members of the national security team, whether it's the national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, or CIA Director Bill Burns. And in between all of those meetings, those top officials are engaged in conversations with their counterparts in Israel, but also in neighboring countries, including countries that may have a more direct line to leaders of Hamas, as we saw with the update around Egypt earlier today. They'll also be talking to countries with a shared concern about the escalation of violence in the region, which is a real concern. The private conversations with Israeli officials likely reflect much of the language that the president has said publicly, reiterating support, asking what they need. We'll get an update on that, it sounds like, later today, while also encouraging them to take into account the number of innocent civilians in Gaza. And remember, this president has known Prime Minister Netanyahu for decades. And yes, they've had moments of tension. That is not new. But the president has always been pretty pragmatic and consistent about his support for Israel, regardless of his personal feelings at any moment about Netanyahu. Their relationship helped bring an end to the conflict in 2021 as well. So there are big immediate questions, including how Israel can bring their hostages home, how the United States can secure additional assistance without a Speaker of the House, what what the White House can do without Congress, and longer term, what does this mean for the president's effort to bring about an ambitious agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia? This war also has the potential to escalate, leading to a significant number of civilian casualties in Gaza, and also has the potential to expand beyond the border of Israel. Joining me now is somebody who has dealt with many conflicts and many challenging circumstances, John Brennan. He's the former CIA director under President Barack Obama and a senior national security analyst for MSNBC. Director Brennan, I think we're all uh, still pretty shaken by the images and what we've seen over the last 36 hours. But I also wanted to ask you, I want to start by asking you about Prime Minister Netanyahu's considerations, because Hamas has taken hostages. We don't know the total number. Uh, Presumably and reportedly, they are being spread out across Gaza and other areas that Prime Minister Netanyahu may want to launch retaliatory attacks on. How does he factor that in, and, and what could happen in the coming days? Well, I think Prime Minister Netanyahu and his cabinet have to take into account a number of concerns and considerations. One is they have to mitigate any continuing threats or risks that exist. Are there still Hamas militants that are in Israeli territory? What can they do to find them and make sure that they're not going to carry out additional attacks? Number two, try to get as much information as possible about the hostages, the captives, where they might have been taken to, what may in fact be what Hamas is planning to do with them and how he can in fact find them. Number three, also, I think he's going to have to demonstrate to the Israeli public that he is going to take firm action against Hamas. We've already seen the bombings that are taking place in Gaza City, as well as Khan Yunus, the two largest cities in Gaza. But there's going to be a retaliatory sort of aspect to this, that Netanyahu is feeling pressure, mainly from his right wing, to be as aggressive and as brutal and even as ruthless as possible, while at the same time making sure that he does not do too much that's going to put the lives of those hostages at risk. When it comes to the hostages, this isn't necessarily a surprise, but Secretary of State Blinken confirmed this morning that there could be Americans, of course, there are many Americans who live in Israel who are part of the group of hostages. Is there a role, I mean, you're the former director of the CIA, that the CIA or other U.S. agencies could play in helping identify, helping bring back those hostages? Well, I'm sure there's been a surge in U.S. intelligence capabilities in terms of mainly on the technical front, trying to get as much intelligence as possible about who is being held captive, where 
where they are, and information about U.S. citizens. But I'm, I'm confident the intelligence community here in the United States is working closely with their counterparts. And this surge of intelligence, mainly on the technical front again, uh, to try to provide the Israelis whatever insight they need in order to carry out their responsibilities to try to, again, bring these captives home, but also to prevent any further attacks coming from Hamas. You have worked in the intelligence community for, for decades, including with Israel and with their intelligence uh, security forces. They have, they have a reputation for having a very strong intelligence uh, community. Were, were you surprised that this was, a, was, this was a surprise to them? I find it incomprehensible that Hamas was able to carry out such a well-planned, multi-dimensional um, operation against uh, Israel and Israeli intelligence seemed to be caught totally unawares. Mm. Um, th th this had to take months and months of planning. I think it demonstrates Hamas really has learned how to carry out this type of planning and not have the Israelis become aware of it. So, uh, I, again, the Israeli intelligence is mainly Shin Bet, which is the domestic intelligence agency, as well as the Israeli military intelligence that has responsibility for Gaza. But it does raise questions about whether or not Israeli sources, both human and technical sources have been compromised by Hamas and the Israelis were being fed false information and gave them a false sense mm. of complacency because there were just so many Hamas militants that were involved in this. Again, it just it took many, many months in order to plan this. And when you say compromised, do you mean that uh, some of these intelligence forces for Israel could have gone and yeah, they could Hamas? have been doubled. They could have been identified by Hamas and then doubled back against Israel and being fed, you know, false information into Israeli intelligence uh, headquarters, as well as some of their technical systems. They might have, you know, found out where they were and being and then uh, intentionally putting information uh, into that uh, that, again, did not give Israel a sense that this planning was taking place. Some of the military tactics used here, I mean, this is advanced military uh, tools that were used here in these attacks. Was that surprising to you? What does that tell you about Hamas's capabilities or who may or may not have been helping them? Well, it shows great compartmentation on the part of Hamas, because, again, there were just so many different elements involved in this, you know, land, sea, air. But uh, Hamas over the years has been able to accumulate quite a bit of uh, rockets and munitions. It has received training from outside. It's been, you know, the benefactor of Iran and, and others have provided Hamas the wherewithal, the ability, the insights, the training that is necessary to do this. So, so clearly this was very well orchestrated. It was done at the senior leaders of, you know, Hamas, and it's something that I know was planned for many, many years, and I think they just took advantage of the opportunity. And when I look at some of the, the footage in the, this music festival that took place right outside of uh, the Gaza Strip and the wanton slaughter of individuals there, I mean, it, this clearly shows the core militant group within Hamas really carried this out uh, with, with great uh, vengeance as well as with tremendous execution. There's, of course, an active conflict on the ground right now. U.S. officials are trying to figure out what kind of assistance that can be provided. But there's this risk of escalation beyond the borders. I mean, there were a couple of Hezbollah attacks this morning. There are questions about what Iran did or didn't know. You've obviously worked in the Middle East quite a bit over the years. How concerned are you about that possibility of escalation uh, beyond the borders? I'm very concerned. I think the situation is going to get worse before it gets better. 
I think those attacks across the northern Lebanese border by Hezbollah this morning was just a symbolic show of support. Mm. Uh, but the Hezbollah clearly has a lot more capability if they decide to try to use that against Israel. And concerns about the West Bank and the Palestinians there who are concerned about their fellow Palestinians, you know, fate in, in Gaza. But we already heard reports about Israeli tourists being killed in Cairo. Um, so this has a potential real for escalation. And a lot is going to depend on how Netanyahu is able to balance the need to be able to mitigate the threat, be able to make sure his you know, captives and hostages are returned safely, but not to go overboard and to you know, really carry out these you know, revenge attacks against the, the people, the civilians of, of Gaza, because there are innocents in Israel and, and Palestine uh, and, and the Palestinian territories that are really paying the price here. And I think this death toll is going to go up uh, significantly in the, uh, the days and, and potentially weeks to, to come. And it sounds like you're concerned that in response to his right-wing government and also the response to the Israeli people, Prime Minister Netanyahu could really, there could be many, 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 many casualties in Gaza in part, as part of this response. Yeah, when I see that the buildings is, uh, are exploding in, in Gaza, uh, it shows that these attacks by Israeli Air Force and others are, are really going to lead to a large number of civilian casualties, which is only going to fuel the fires of militancy among the people of Gaza as they see you know, innocent men, women, and children who are going to be killed as a result of these, these strikes. So both sides, there is you know, the right wing, those that are really pushing for a very aggressive, violent, and militant posture, unfortunately, I think are going to rule the day, which is very, very unfortunate because, again, this situation needs to have a very calm, but yet a very uh, you know, dedicated effort to try to resolve you know, the current situation, but also address some of these underlying factors and conditions that have led to this you know, situation. Director Brennan, thank you so much for taking the time to join me here this afternoon. I really appreciate it. Uh, we're going to be following the breaking news out of Israel all hour long as the fighting continues and new details trickle out about the hostages who have been captured. Prime Minister Netanyahu is warning of a long and difficult war to come. Ben Rhodes, who served as Deputy National Security Advisor under President Obama, joins me. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Next, we'll be right back. today, the office of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu put out a statement that Israel's security cabinet had voted last night to put the country officially at war, allowing it to carry out, quote, significant military activities. The cabinet vote gives official legal standing to what Prime Minister Netanyahu already said after Hamas began its operation that has so far killed 600 Israeli people, according to the latest from reporting on the ground. Joining me now is Ben Rhodes, who was a former deputy national security advisor and my colleague to President Obama. He's also 
also an MSNBC contributor. So, Ben, I want to just start with this question about the relationship between President Biden and uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, because there's been a lot of focus. I get asked this a lot on the tensions and how much that matters and what it means in this case. So what is your thought on that? Well, look, they've known each other for a very, very long time. Uh, there have been uh, lots of dust-ups over the years. Um, but frankly, Jen, I think in a time like this, that doesn't matter all that much, right? Uh, it's the President of the United States who has been consistently very strongly behind Israel, dealing with a prime minister that he knows well, who's in a circumstance that is incredibly complicated, if not unprecedented for Israel. And the exchange is going to be very straightforward. What do you need from the United States in the coming days? Um, and then I think it pivots probably in those coming days to trying to prevent further escalation outside of Israel or the kind of civilian casualties in Gaza um, that obviously nobody wants to see. The U.S. has this kind of balancing act, I think, that it, it often plays in these Gaza wars. And this one is obviously much bigger, um, where you're simultaneously providing support, but also trying uh, to prevent the conflict from escalating to a much greater level. Prime Minister Netanyahu is obviously leading a country that has just faced a devastating attack. He's also leading a right-wing coalition who is putting pressure on him to have a very strong response here. How do you think that is going to impact what we see over the next couple of days or even weeks? Well, look, I mean, this has been part of the problem and in the run-up to this. And I think when people look at the, the intelligence failure that you were talking about with John Brennan, there's also the question of this far-right government was focused on its judicial overhaul, essentially eroding Israeli democracy. Uh, it was at odds with some of the military uh, establishment uh, in that country. And, and those tensions, those divisions in terms of Israeli society, um, that may have contributed uh, to Hamas, uh, obviously <laughs> totally responsible for all of this uh, horrific carnage that we've watched, uh, but that may contribute to their decision-making. I think going forward, Israelis naturally rally around the flag in circumstances like this. Um, so I'd expect the Israeli people to be united, but there's a key political question here. Some of the more moderate opposition, uh, people like Yair Lapid have indicated they'd be willing to come into a unity government for this war, but only if I think some of those far-right ministers are not a part of that unity government. Mm. Meanwhile, the Israeli far-right is going to be demanding much, much more ruthless escalation from Netanyahu, essentially flattening Gaza, moving in with a major ground operation, maybe escalating against Iran. So in the decision that Netanyahu has to make about whether he chooses a unity gov government or whether he chooses these kind of far right ministers, that's going to be a choice not just about his political orientation for this war. It's going to probably tell us something about how far he's going to go. Is he going to do the things that the far right wants him to do in this case, or is he going to kind of follow the centrist military advice uh, that is coming from the Israeli system. He's historically, though, been drawn more to the far-right coalitions and the factions of the Israeli government who want to use more military force. I mean, wouldn't you be surprised if he decided to go the other way? What's interesting about Netanyahu, Jen, is that he is always sided with the far-right politically. When he has a, a political decision to make, um, he always breaks to the right. However, in military operations, 
He's been a little bit more cautious than his uh, own rhetoric sometimes would suggest. There were four wars in Gaza after 2007. Netanyahu often resisted the major ground incursions that could have brought even more terrible loss of life uh, for Israelis and um, uh, more acutely for Palestinians. Um, he, he has been open to U.S.-supported negotiated ceasefires in each of those cases. Um, so he's tried to balance his political orientation to the right with, uh, 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 I think, a, a carefulness about uh, escalation. I think here we're going to learn, because this is the biggest crisis he's ever faced. And this upsets the whole notion that he brought security to this circumstance uh, with his blockade of Gaza. We're about to find out um, what he's going to do when his back is against the wall and the biggest crisis he, he's faced. Is he going to pivot again to the right and do something that could escalate this even much further beyond what we've seen with tragic consequences for uh, all manner of people, including uh, civilians in Gaza? Um, or can he find a way uh, to to accomplish military objectives without raising Gaza to the ground uh, and keep the focus on getting those uh, abductees back home. Mm. Ben, ben Rhodes, thank you so much. I always learn something from you, always. Really appreciate you joining me today. Before we go to a break, we have an update on Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey, who was in Israel on a Kodal when hostilities broke out. He and his staff sheltered in place in Jerusalem when Hamas launched their attack, but they have now safely departed. And up next, our reporters on the ground say there's every indication that Israel is planning for what could be a large-scale ground offensive into Gaza to rescue the hostages taken by Hamas. It could be one of the most extensive and complex hostage rescue operations the world has seen. My next two guests have a wealth of knowledge from their extensive backgrounds reporting on the Middle East. Andrea Mitchell and Peter Baker join me next. Welcome back. We're following some breaking news amid Israel's war with Hamas after that surprise attack yesterday. NBC's Courtney Kuby joins me now with more on what she's learning. Courtney, we talked about this about an hour and a half ago. So what have you learned since then? Yeah, it's sort of what we've been waiting to hear. And that is, according to two U.S. officials who are familiar with the planning, the U.S. military is planning to send some uh, U.S. military assets closer to Israel. This would be a show of support for Israel. So we're not talking about the U.S. military getting involved in this conflict on the ground, but it would be uh, things like U.S. Navy ships into the Med, maybe some aircraft moving closer so that they could be showing their they could show their support for Israel. But in addition to that, there is still this question of whether the U.S. will have to make some effort to get Americans out of Israel. These Navy ships, these assets being closer to Israel will make that planning a little bit easier. And then if there is an order, some sort of an ordered departure, some sort of an evacuation ordered, then they will have more assets there in the ready. Now, I have to stress, as you know, Jen, you know this well, you know this probably a lot better than I do. No, no evacuation has been ordered, but they try, they are trying to get some of their assets in place should the, the U.S. government need to try to get Americans out of there. Jen. That's, it's significant. They're always planning and the federal government. So that's certainly a sign of that. And it sounds like, I mean, this is pretty quick to move 24 hours after these attacks to show a sign of support, to make sure they're ready in the event they need uh, these ships there. And it sounds like they're also preparing to maybe ask Congress for more assistance, too. So that's another piece that we'll all be watching for. Courtney uh, Kuby, thank you so much for providing us with your update. And I'm joined now by two people who have been covering the region and the leaders involved for decades, Andrew 
Andrea Mitchell, Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent for NBC News, and Peter Baker, who is Chief White House Correspondent for The New York Times. So I want to just start with this broad question, because I think we've all been trying to make sense of what's different here. We've seen conflicts for decades. We've seen escalating conflicts over the past couple of years. Andrea, I want to start with you. Help us understand what is different about what we've seen over the last 36 hours. What's different is that this is, first of all, a ground invasion, air, sea, and land. Uh, never before have they gotten beyond the tunnels. They got through the border, the most tightly you know, controlled border anywhere in the region is that border between Gaza and southern Israel. They got through that. They were resupplied from the sea as they have been in the past, but they landed the paragliders. This was organized, and it was organized without any intelligence being picked up by either Israel or the U.S. So arguably both countries distracted by domestic concerns, political concerns, and morale in the IDF, the Israeli army, and in the Israeli intelligence, uh, weakened perhaps, arguably, by so many of the veterans there joining the protest movement against what is erroneously called reform, which is basically an undoing of separation of powers and democracy in Israel. There, there's so many, as Andrew just touched on, political dynamics on the ground right now. Obviously, this is an act of conflict, so it's not the current focus. But, Peter, you spent a period of time on the ground in Israel. You've also covered uh, conflicts there for years. Help us understand kind of the politics on the ground, how that could be impacting Prime Minister Netanyahu. I mean, he's leading the most right-wing coalition in recent memory. How could that impact his response? Right. Well, for the moment, of course, is unified Israel. Nothing unifies the country more than an external threat, than mm -hmm. an invasion by a hostile force. And if there's talk, as, as Ben said earlier, of a unity government with Yair Lapid and, and Benny Gantz, who are his opponents. Um, but he's going to feel pressured to respond in, a, in a, a powerful and important way. And the question is whether they go in to Gaza by land again, and not just airstrikes, but do they send in ground forces? If, there, if it weren't for the hostages, if it weren't for the fact that people were held captive, maybe he could resist. But the fact that there are people to be rescued, and we don't know yet how many, as you said earlier on the program, that's going to press Netanyahu's hand. And the idea of re-entering Gaza after leaving in 2005 is something that the military is prepared for, but nobody really wants to do because they see that as a very dangerous and combustible possibility. And they don't want to stay there longer than they have to. It's been a lot to watch. It could mean it's an extended war. And Andrew, we've been talking a lot this morning about the hostages. You have covered so many hostage situations around the world over the years. A couple things I think people should understand. The United States first has to contact the families, identify who's an American citizen. There are so many American dual citizens living in Israel. Tell us a little bit about, there's also been prisoner swaps in, in Israel that Netanyahu has ever seen. What are you watching for here as you're, as you're looking for news about the hostages and how Netanyahu and the Israelis will handle this? Well, first of all, it's important to understand that for Israel, it is an article of faith that no one is left behind. We talk about no soldier being left behind. No Israeli citizen or soldier and it's all the same because all Israeli citizens, other than the very, you know, conservative uh, Orthodox, serve in the military and can be called up and are being called up now, being brought back from newspapers mm -hmm. and uh, bus other businesses and from homes across Israel. So this is a mobilization. No one can be left behind. They traded more than a thousand Palestinians back just to get one Israeli soldier who'd been held for several years yeah. in Gaza. So they will not 
rest until they get them back. But then the question is, how do they have the overwhelming response that they are being pressured to have? As John Brennan pointed out to you, uh, you can't bomb these buildings you know, and take out whole apartment buildings without knowing where are the human shields? Where are the American, because uh, Secretary Blinken confirmed to Kristen Welker today, mm. there are likely Americans involved as both victims dead among the casualties and also those taken hostage. But so how do you bomb those buildings without taking out not only some innocent Palestinians in Gaza, but also the, the Israelis who are being held hostage. It is a terrible, terrible challenge. Uh, and for and Americans and citizens from around the world. There has been, uh, outside of this, there has been this effort, ambitious, I would say, um, for of the Biden administration to yeah. kind of come to a rapprochement. You've both written about this um, between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Where do you think, I'm going to start with you, Peter, I know we have a little bit of time left, but yeah. where do you think that sits right well, now? Well, I mean, President Biden wanted to invent a new Middle East, one that scrambles the old orders and brings a new uh, uh, alignment between Israel and Saudi Arabia against Iran. That all now looks a little problematic at the moment. The old Middle East has kind of reared its head and said, wait a second, you're not done with us yet. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be harder for the Saudis and the Israelis to come together on any kind of deal that doesn't address the Palestinians and both sides are going to find it harder to make a deal given what's happened now. Doesn't mean it can't happen. We'll wait and see how this plays out. But for the moment, anyway, obviously, it's more complicated. Peter Baker, Andrea Mitchell, I could talk to you all afternoon, but I will be watching all of your reporting over the course of the next coming days. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks for having uh, us. And Republican Congressman Mike Lawler is standing by. I'll ask him what a speakerless House can and should do to help Israel right now. That conversation is coming up after this. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Quick break. As the fighting continues today in Israel, we are keeping a close eye on Capitol Hill, where the U.S. House of Representatives is currently without a speaker. The speaker would normally get briefed on a situation like this, but last night, Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries was the one getting briefed. As Jake Sherman, point, as Jake Sherman points out, a speakerless House will be very limited in what it can do to help our strongest ally in the Middle East. Republican Congressman Mike Lawler of New York had some choice words in his response to that. Quote, this is why you don't remove a speaker midterm without cause. What an unmitigated dot, dot, dot. Well, you can see where the word he used there. I'm not going to say it today on this morning program. Joining me now is Republican Congressman Mike Lawler of New York. He's a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Congressman, we know there's going to be a speaker uh, vote for speaker this week, and I want to get to that. But first, I want to start with the attack in Israel yesterday and something you tweeted. You tweeted, quote, these terrorists have been emboldened by the Biden administration's failed policies of appeasement towards Iran with a $6 billion cash giveaway. Now, this is a talking point we're, we're hearing a lot right now, but I think we all believe in facts. So I just want to give a few of those. 
The $6 billion was part of a deal to bring five prisoners home. It's not U.S. taxpayer money. It's still being held in a secure bank account in Doha, and each transaction will be monitored by the U.S. Treasury Department. Not a cent of it has been spent. Would you dispute any of those facts I just laid out? No, not at all. Uh, but it goes to my point that I raised two weeks ago with the administration in a foreign affairs hearing, uh, which is that we should not be trading sanctioned funds uh, for hostages. Uh, obviously, in this instance, we traded uh, those uh, folks that we had been holding uh, in exchange for hostages. And the, in addition to that, the Biden administration uh, released $6 billion in sanctioned Iranian funds. The problem is, Jen, when you do that, uh, money is fungible. And so Iran is able to shift other resources uh, that it otherwise would not have been able to well, do. They are the I'm greatest. Stop, with all I'm going to stop you. I'm going to stop you right there, Congressman, the because what you just stated, what you just stated, they are the is inaccurate. The funding, Congressman, the funding not. does not go to Iranian hands. It goes to approved third-party vendors who provide humanitarian support. I did want to ask you, though, Congressman, because the Again, Trump administration you're not you're also, uh, with all due respect, Jen, Jen, with all due respect, you're not listening to what I just said. The bottom line is when you are releasing sanctioned funds that that goes to Iran ultimately, OK, whether you want to say it is to purchase uh, food and clothing and other humanitarian uh, relief, the bottom line is money is fungible and you are freeing up other resources they would otherwise have needed to spend uh, on such efforts. And they are the greatest state sponsor of terrorism, period. And we just have a difference of opinion on how they should be handled. I believe this administration has been weak when it comes to Iran. I think they have tried to appease Iran. They have also tried to force Israel when it comes to Saudi Arabia to acquiesce to the Palestinians. And I'm sorry. The Palestinians are still engaged in pay to slay. We just held a hearing on this uh, two weeks ago. And the administration has been very weak on enforcing uh, the Taylor Force Act. And uh, this is a real challenge in the region. So to act as though that isn't a problem, I'm sorry, I disagree. Uh, Congressman, with you. and no one's acting like it's not a problem. However, and I think the administration has been clear about their concerns about Iranians, uh, Iran's actions as well. But it is not money that goes to the Iranian government, which I, I think is important for people to understand. I did want to ask you, though, the Trump administration did strike a similar deal where they allowed uh, the government to draw on human uh, or third party groups to draw on humanitarian funds that was verified by the U.S. Treasury in, in, in exchange for bringing prisoners home. Did you disapprove of that deal as well? Well, the, the bottom line at all times in our government is we should not be sanctioning funds and then releasing those sanctioned funds. Uh, so at any administration uh, that does that, it's wrong. I just fundamentally oppose that concept. If we are engaged in sanctions, and I've introduced legislation, for instance, the SHIP Act, uh, which would further sanction Iranian petroleum. Uh, if we're going to implement sanctions, we should adhere to those. Obviously, we want to bring hostages home. Uh, and oftentimes what we have done and what the Trump administration did do was exchange uh, hostages that Iran was holding uh, in exchange for uh, terrorists that we had. But to to trade funds, to me, uh, as part of any such agreement is wrong. 
And I've opposed well, it then. I oppose it now. Uh, and I just think the idea that you're you're saying, well, the Trump administration did it, too. Uh, look, this is I, I, I wasn't foolish. validating it. it Congressman, I, I was asking, we need to be strong. I was asking we need to you be for, strong in opposition your to Iran. Well, I think everyone agrees on that. But I think when you're sitting I, in the Oval I, Office, I whether that. you're... I think, I think let it's me, wrong let me, anytime it's let me, done. Let me finish, Congressman. When you're sitting in the Oval Office and you're making a decision about how to bring hostages home, there's a question if, you, if it's between unfreezing this money that could be used for humanitarian aid, doesn't go to the government, or no deal at all, would you choose no deal? That's what it sounds like to me. But you have the Iranian, you have the Iranian regime saying uh, that... They're not going to use it the way that the United States prescribes. Okay. And so you can sit here and say, oh, well, it's going through Qatar. Well, Qatar also has a relationship with Hamas. Uh, so there are real challenges here right now. And what we saw yesterday, uh, was a terrorist attack by Hamas and they are sponsored by and backed by Iran. Uh, and so the challenge to me and the question to me as we move forward, is how do we handle uh, the, the challenges we are facing in the Middle East? Appeasement is not a solution. And freeing up $6 billion in sanctioned funds is wrong. I oppose it. And I just think fundamentally uh, that may be a difference of opinion uh, by, by me and the administration. Uh, but I think when you are freeing up funds uh, that have been sanctioned and money is fungible, you are freeing up other funds that Iran would otherwise have to use on humanitarian efforts among its country. Uh, and that, to me, is wrong. But you would admit, acknowledge that not a single cent of this has been spent, uh, and nor has it been obviously used by the Iranian government, given it's still sitting I didn't in say, I didn't. I, I, did, I, didn't, I didn't say that it was. What I said was, and I said this two weeks ago when we had a hearing, uh, that this was wrong. And it is a short-sighted policy that this administration has engaged in. And as I also said, they were pushing uh, for f funds to go back to the Palestinian uh, Authority. And I'm sorry, the Taylor Force Act was put in place specifically because the Palestinian Authority was paying people to go kill Israelis. And we put that law in place under the Trump administration to prevent American aid uh, and our allies from giving aid to the Palestinian Authority when they are using funds to kill Israelis. And that, to me, is unassailable. And it's something that this administration needs to take accountability for, that they have not enforced the Taylor Force Act in the way that it was intended to be. Congressman Mike Lawler, I appreciate you joining me today. There are tough choices that always need to be made in the Oval Office. A man whose wife and two young daughters are missing after Hamas invaded his in-laws' home near the Gaza border joins me next. Stay with us. Right now, Israel is still trying to account for just how many innocent civilians have been captured by Hamas militants. Across social media, terrifying images and videos have surfaced, appearing to show militants indiscriminately taking hostages, including women and small children, and bringing them to Gaza against their will. Family members have had to rely on social media to help identify or track down their loved ones. One of them is Yoni Asher, a father desperately searching for his wife and two young daughters, just four and two years old, and his 
mother-in-law who was taken with them. His wife and daughters traveled to an area near the Gaza border to visit his wife's family when they were abducted. Before their abduction, Usher's wife called him to tell him militants were inside the house they were in, but they lost contact. He was able to track her cell phone to Gaza. He wasn't sure his family had been kidnapped until he saw this video of them taken by Hamas on social media. Uh, Yoni Asher joins me now. First, I can't imagine. Uh, I can't imagine what you must be feeling right now. So how are you doing? How are you doing? Tell us a little bit more about how you're doing uh, over the last 36 hours. Hello. Um, the last 36 hours, I'm, um, I'm in, a, in a different world. Uh, I'm basically not feeling anything but the willing to work hard in order to get my wife and daughters back. And um, the feeling is awful. We have a feeling of uh, uncertainty, of frustration. Uh, we don't have enough information. Since yesterday I saw this video, I have no, no new information. And uh, the feeling is horrible. I know for people watching who are trying to understand the impact of these attacks yesterday, it's really important for them to understand stories like yours. Tell us, we've seen pictures, we've just done a lot of pictures of your wife and daughters. Tell us a little bit about them. My uh, two baby girls, which one of them is less than five and this, the little one is less than three. They are even not girls, they are babies. And my wife, uh, they are my only family. We are a regular family. They are uh, lovely girls, very energetic, very happy girls. Uh, love, love to sing, love to dance, love their mother, love to play. They have a lot of friends and uh, they're like every other ordinary uh, child. And uh, to think that they held by Hamas right now, for a parent, it's the most horrific um, uh, thought that uh, someone can uh, that someone can uh, think. I know I, I can't imagine anything more horrific as a parent myself. I, I wanted to ask you, I know you've spoken uh, over the past day or so, and you've said you said you weren't able to speak with government officials yet about the kidnapping. Has that changed? Have you been able to speak with anyone in the government? Well, uh, yes. Today, I uh, can you hear me? Yes. Yes, I can. Um, today, uh, they contacted me from the police and uh, some other authorities like the, the foreign department. Um, but yet there is no new information since yesterday, since I saw the video uh, earlier, I lost contact with my wife during a phone call, which she told me that terrorists are in the house. And later on, uh, I located her uh, mobile phone and saw it's in Khan Yunus. And only later on, I saw the video, which confirmed that she is on this cart or vehicle. And I saw my uh, two daughters as well, uh, and my mother-in-law. Also, my mother-in-law's spouse were ta was taken and uh, not documented on this video. But we believe that he's also uh, taken. 
with along with him. You also, your wife has also has German citizenship, if I understand correctly, and you've appealed to the government of Germany for help. Have you been in contact with any German officials? Yes, that's right. My wife and my mother-in-law have uh, German citizenship, and uh, we did contact uh, the embassy in Tel Aviv, and uh, we tried to contact other uh, officials. Uh, right now we got uh, an answer, but uh, there is still not uh, any new information. Uh, we got only primer uh, uh, answer, first answer, and uh, initial answer, sorry. And um, that's it. We don't have new information. Uh, we are uh, very frustrated here at home. I am very frustrated. And... Uh, um, I just want my uh, little baby girls to be back home with my wife, my family, uh, my mother-in-law, her uh, spouse. Um, that's I it. know we all we all want them to be home with you. I, I know that you ha have said that your the call was disconnected with your wife when you were on the phone with her. Can you describe the last thing that she said to you? The last thing she said to me was that uh, there are uh, terrorists in the house and she told me that uh, they are making mess and uh, they are armed and um, and uh, she couldn't keep talking. I was afraid uh, I was afraid that moment that uh, the conversation uh, will be uh, at her uh, um, that someone will uh, catch them because of the conversation or the noise. It's a very uh, terrifying moments, which my girls can also make noise or cry. And I, the worst has happened because they discovered them and uh, took them. So I was praying that this, this, it didn't happen. But unfortunately, uh, the video showed that uh, otherwise. Yoni Asher, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Our hearts are all with you, and we want you to be back uh, with your girls. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed.